you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, I want to talk about strengthening your heart. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Just one verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Strengthening your heart. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Again, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Apparently, around the world, not only around the world, but here, heart disease is one of the leading uh, underlying causes of death. And uh, apparently on at least 42% of death certificates that were issued in 2021, uh, heart disease was listed on those death certificates, heart failure. And of course, with whatever, all that is going on today with COVID and so on, there are supposed complications uh, due to all of these underlying conditions that many, many people have. And not only complications uh, uh, in actual deaths connected to perhaps COVID, but also simply the statistical data simply points to the fact that heart disease is a very pertinent and a very relevant thing uh, for people in America and for people around the world. It is... Uh, in some cases, genetics, it is in some cases related to uh, where you live and all of those kinds of things. Many, many factors contributing to the failure of the human heart from a physical point of view, from sickness, from illness, from disease. And in spite of all of our advancements in medical science, and there are many, many advancements in medical science, science and, in, and in the use of all of our common sense that we have, you know, like things like watch what you eat and make sure that you exercise, all of these things that we're told. Still, in spite of all of that, heart troubles affect many, many people. People who engage in watching what they eat and indeed in making sure they exercise. We all know from the Bible that disease is ultimately related to our sin, to sin itself. And the Bible emphatically teaches us that that uh, death, which disease leads to, uh, leads to death, is the complication, is the result of all sin. And Paul, in Romans chapter 5, for example, specifically teaches in that very, very important passage, he teaches us that we all die by virtue of Adam's sin. And that's a very, very significant statement that the apostle makes when he talks about our connection to Adam and the fact that because Adam died, we also will die. And if we die then due to Adam's sin, then there has to be, Paul says, a participation in Adam's sin connected with the punishment that God therefore brings about. That's also a very, very important thing because it means when Adam sinned in the garden, you sinned and I sinned and we're held accountable and guilty for that sin of Adam. So sin and death are always married together in the Bible. We can't separate them. We can never divorce them from each other. We all recognize that because of sin we die. We die physically and 
we're not believers in the Lord Jesus, we are dead spiritually, we're in darkness, we're without Christ. So we all recognize uh, those things. In the physical sense of these matters, in the physical context, uh, heart troubles exist, failures exist, heart disease exists, it's everywhere. But here, in Hebrews 13 and verse 9, the writer to the Hebrews is not concerned with our physical hearts. He is concerned with our spiritual hearts. Or to put it another way, he's concerned with the spiritual trouble of your heart. And so this is a very crucial, a very important text, I think, that we find here. In fact, he says just straight out, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That's all you need. To strengthen your heart, grace. Nothing more, nothing less. It's grace that enables us to fulfill spiritual exercises, spiritual disciplines, and many other things. We do it all by grace. We're under grace. It's a very powerful thing to be under grace. So strengthen, he says, your heart by grace. It's a good thing, he says. And I want you to notice how he does distinguish between the spiritual entities and the physical entities in verse 9. So, for instance, look what he says in verse 9. He talks about, about the fact that uh, the heart needs to be strengthened by grace. He doesn't mean your physical heart. But then he talks about food. And food, he's not talking about food spiritually, food here. He's talking about physical food. So the, the, the writer to the Hebrews is making this this connection which is strange and which is odd in one sense because he's talking about physical food and the ingestion of it, but then he talks about uh, spiritual strengthening of your heart. So strengthened by grace, that's the spiritual ap uh, part of it, and not by foods, which is the physical part of it. In fact, in fact, he says in the text, as far as devotion is concerned for these Hebrew Christians, there was absolutely no benefit in the physical partaking of the foods. The spiritual strengthening of your heart is your responsibility and my responsibility. And the writer to the Hebrews sets it in the context of don't be led away, he says, by strange and diverse teachings in verse 9. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's obvious that we should not be led away by various teachings, strange ideas, strange teachings. We should not give in to those. But then he says, you should strengthen your heart by grace. And then he says, and not by foods, which people were devoted to, the Hebrews, the Israel, and yet it benefited them absolutely nothing. So how, what, what do we make of this verse that the writer to the Hebrews has put here? And notice that he certainly does connect foods and the eating of foods in verse 9 to these other things that he talks about in the context. So the most important point, I think, for us to recognize and to see here is that all physical outcomes, all physical decisions, all physical practices, all physical beliefs, all physical doctrines, whatever they may be and advocate, they're all tied to spiritual consequences. Whatever you believe about anything, has a spiritual connection, especially if you're a Christian. We recognize that, right? Uh, so if I'm at work and I'm confronted by something from the world, I recognize as a Christian that it is worldly and that I should respond accordingly to it. How I respond 
is dependent upon how strong my heart is at that moment in grace. Because I may yield, I may give in, I may compromise with the world. But we all know, if we are Christians, what those things mean. So whatever you're confronted by, these uh, physical matters that, that people put upon as important or significant, we recognize that they're all tied to the spiritual realm, to our spiritual lives. Which means, of course, when you put it into the context of belief and doctrine, all false teaching, all foolish beliefs are tied to some physical entity, some physical thing. And it's that physical thing, foods in the verse, which is normal in and of itself, that becomes the deceptive thing and becomes the dangerous thing. So food in and of itself is not a bad thing. Food is necessary to life. And here were people who were devoted to food things in the religious sense, the food being the physical entity, and yet that connection spiritually benefited them zero. And so we have to try and understand what this writer means. And notice again, food and grace, food and grace. So what we should all desire and what we should all aim for is a stronger heart. Uh, I suppose if you exercise regularly, you do that because you want to keep in shape. You want to keep fit. You want your heart to beat as it should beat. Uh, if you have a weak heart, you want to strengthen your heart. Uh, I, think, I think this is why people spend millions going to the gyms and all of that to make sure that they live longer, hopefully. That's their plan. That's their purpose, right? No guarantee, of course. You can come out of the door and drop dead of a heart attack. So, but that's why they do it, right? In the same sense, I am feasting and feeding my spiritual soul, my soul, my spiritual life on spiritual matters so that I don't drop dead of a spiritual heart attack. I'm strengthening my heart by grace. We just sang about by grace alone. We all recognize that we confess that it's by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, all of those five alones, the five solas of the Reformation. We all understand that. And grace is right there at the heart of it all because grace pertains to the Scripture and pertains to Jesus and pertains to faith and pertains to the glory of God. That God, giving us grace, receives back from us all the glory and all the praise. So we live our lives under grace. Not under law, with all of its do's and don'ts, as we said this morning, but we live under grace. So we must work to strengthen our spiritual hearts according to the grace of God so that we might be stronger Christians. And the only way that can be done, as the writer to the Hebrew says here, is by grace. By grace. And he doesn't tell us that it's by reading your Bible. He doesn't tell us that it's by praying more or being very good in your prayer life. He doesn't say that. Those are necessary things. But every single thing you do in your life is by the grace of God. Everything. There's nothing exempt. You fall under the grace of God and the goodness of God, the favor, the kindness of God. So that all spiritual growth ultimately is a grace exercise. So that when I study my Bible, read my Bible, fellowship with Christians, it's grace in the back of my mind. That I'm doing these things, that I am here, that I belong because of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, that we through His poverty might be rich. He doesn't mean rich physically, 
but rich spiritually, rich eternally, right? All by grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all spiritual growth is, is ultimately tied to grace as an exercise. And it's always tied to God's grace. To God's grace. So now, Hebrews chapter 13, which is a remarkable chapter at the end of this book. Some of the things that he says might cause you to wonder why he says them. Why he says them where he says them. We saw that with verse 8, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Why is that verse, verse 8, where it is? I talked at great length about why verse 8 is where it is. So this chapter so far is full of spiritual encouragements. If you, if you were to read verses 1 through 7, you would discover it's all about spiritual encouragements. All dependent upon also and related to verse 8. It's because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever that I must ensure that brotherly love continues, verse 1. It's because Jesus is unchangeable, unchanging, in verse 8, that I must ensure, in verse 2, that I entertain uh, people in prison, or uh, I should say people, the strangers, show hospitality to them, like some have entertained angels. It's because of Jesus unchanged that I should remember those who are imprisoned for their faith and mistreated for their faith. It's because of Jesus that marriage should be held in high honor and so on, as he says in verse 4. And it's because of Jesus the same that I should keep my life free from the love of money and I should be content with my possessions, with all that I have. Trusting in the Lord who has said, I'll never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Because of Jesus. So Jesus... Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, in verse 8, looks back and is tied to all the injunctions, all the imperatives that have gone before, but now going forward, after verse 8, in verse 9 and onwards, it's still because of Jesus Christ. Now remember, this epistle to the Hebrews is about Christ. It is about Christ so that we will persevere to the end because of Christ. That we will persevere to the end because we can only do so because of Christ. So that Christ is central. Christ is, is all that it is, right? So long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last times, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. And He, the Son is the, the glory or the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And He upholds the universe, the writer to the Hebrews says, by the word of His power, maintaining every structure. And after having made purification, sacrifice for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, didn't He? Right hand of the majesty on high. Having become... The writer to the Hebrews says, as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Because, for to which of the angels has God ever said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Or again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, right? I mean, it's all about Jesus, chapter 1, right? And right through the epistle, it's about Jesus, right to this last chapter, where we discover that Jesus is still the same, still the same, unchanged, unchanging, yesterday, today, 
and forever. So grace is because of Jesus unchanged and unchanging to me. So verse 8, central to the context from all the verses behind it, verses 1 through 7, central to the context of all the verses that are now in front of it, verses 9 through verse 16. And the big concern that this writer to the Hebrews has all the way back to chapter 10 and verse 19 is that these Christians keep on going to the end. Don't give up. You have need of endurance. You have need of discipline. You have need to persevere. That's, what he's all, that's all he's interested in, that they persevere. They can only do that by fixing their minds and their hearts on Christ, unchanging, who in his sacrifice has made atonement, and now in his intercession he intercedes on their behalf, so that they will, those for whom he died, get to glory, because he intercedes for them. So this is about Jesus and his people. And if you're a Hebrew, you understand this concept of the people of God. This is about the people of God in a new covenant relationship with God, with Jesus at the center as their mediator. In fact, he told us in chapter 12 that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So Jesus is at the heart of this whole epistle. And he's always the same. So that the eternity of Christ and the immutability of Christ is such that it should help you and me as we meditate on it to be immovable and to be strong in our faith. So Calvin put it like this. He said that the only way to persevere is by faith and in faith. And it means you lay hold of the foundation and you never move away from it. And since the Lord Jesus, Calvin says, is the object of our faith, it is this that pushes us onward, pushes us forward, pushes us upward to glory. Christ. So I have, you have, an unchanging, all-sufficient Savior who is able to do all that is necessary for, for us by grace, just out of His kindness and goodness and mercy to us. So how do you connect verse 8 to verse 9, right? I mean, it's quite a different subject. Jesus unchanging, you know, uh, eternal, not subject to change, with now, don't be led astray, he says. How do you make that connection? Well, it's not that difficult simply because of the opening words of verse 9. Do not be led away, he says. Or, put it very practically, don't move away from Christ. You move away from Christ, you're open to everything, right? So don't move away from the Lord Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So anything that causes you to move away from the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be detrimental to your spiritual life. I think that's plain and obvious. And so the fact that here are some Hebrew Christians, in verse 9, who have allowed themselves, he says, to be led away by doctrines, by teachings that are foreign to the gospel, the writer to the Hebrews says, and this, the fact that they are led away, do not be led away. He says, the fact that this happens shows their immaturity, shows their instability, and shows their constant need for dependence and reliance upon Jesus who's unchangeable. Because I'm changeable. I'm fickle. But not Jesus in whom I trust and depend. Now back, you know, in chapter 5, verse 11, and the verses that follow verse 11, he says, you have become dull of hearing. Something has come between your, your ability to hear the gospel, to hear what Christ is all about, 
You've become dull of hearing. You, it's as if you don't want to hear, the, the writer says to these Hebrews. In fact, he says in that same passage, you should be mature. You should be eating solid food. You should not be feasting and drinking this milk over and over again. You have need to go on to deeper things, to more solid, richer spiritual food. But you're living on the basics. And we need to progress, right? I mean, that's the evidence of progression from milk to meat, from milk to solid food. And the result, if you are still ingesting milk, is that the writer to the Hebrews says you are unskilled, unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, your discernment, he says, is severely weakened, and your discernment is hampered. And I have noticed over the years, in considering Christianity and churches and Christians, that if you're not able to progress from the basic principles of the Word of God, of the oracles of God, if you're not able to get beyond them and deeper, that then you might and are probably easily taken in by all kinds of new ideas and strange and diverse teachings that come upon you. And the result is you fail to be discerning. And it's discernment in righteousness about the application of righteousness to whatever confronts you. What is God's position on this subject or that subject that confronts me every day of my life? What does God say about it? What does God think about it? I must know what God says about it. The Word of God, the solid teaching of the Word, enables me to make those discernments so that my questions are reduced, that my doubts are reduced, and so on and so forth. That's verse 9. I mean, this is what happens, he says, if you are led away. And remember how Paul spoke to the Ephesians about this danger. He says, it's as if you are tossed to and fro, he says, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine that blows across your path and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You don't recognize them because you're not strengthening your heart by grace. You don't perceive. You don't uh, discern. So when he says, do not be led away, verse 9, again, by the way, that's an imperative, like verse 1, 2, and 3, and verse 7, let brotherly love continue, don't neglect to show hospitality, remember those in prison, right? Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, and all of these things. Remember your leaders, verse 7, consider their way of life, imitate their faith. These are all imperative, imperatival ideas, commands. Same here in verse 9. And this word, notice verse 9, do not be led away. That word led away, parapharo, it means to be carried away. It means to be removed from some position to another position. It's like Jude writes in, in 12, uh, Jude verse 12 and Second Peter writes in 3. It's like waterless clouds that are blown by the wind that drift away. No substance to them, right? So they're just blown hither and yon. So here in verse 9, to be misled from the right way is just simply to be led astray. That's what he's saying. Do not be led away, he says, by diverse and strange teachings. You remember when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress? He talks about how Christian was walking, and he was not paying attention, and he wandered into the slough of despond, and that was such a difficult thing to get out of. It caused him all matter of concern. And as he'd come out of that, he's suddenly confronted with Bypath Meadow. And Bypath Meadow in Pilgrim's Progress, of course, was simply a teaching that you can turn from grace, away from grace to works. 
That if I do this, I please God. If I do that, I get to heaven. If I do that, then God is going to accept me. And all of those kinds of ideas. So instead of receiving, uh, it becomes all about doing. A doing that we call works righteousness. That's what the Apostle Paul thinks about it. Make no mistake, a works righteousness has its doctrine. Has its teaching. It is a system of theology that if you work the backing up of that is doctrine and is teaching, but it's false and it's wrong because it's not by grace. It's all by works. And it leads astray. And this writer to the Hebrews says, it means to be removed from your stability, to be removed from your security, to be exposed to the shifting sands of all human ideas and philosophies. And notice the descriptions of these doctrines. I mean, look what he says in verse 9. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. The first thing you should notice here is that it's in the plural. So it's not a teaching, but it is teachings, plural. Many teachings, strange teachings, diverse teachings. And it's not, it's not just one simple thing then, it's a multiplicity of things. I've also discovered that if you submit to one particular thing, you easily embrace another thing that's diverse or strange. One thing leads to the next and so on. Second, notice this word diverse. It literally means many colored, many colored, a variety of many kinds. So it's all kinds of teaching. I mean, think for a moment of the madness and the variety of charismatic teaching, word faith teaching. Well, I say a madness because that's exactly how I think it is. They go from one extreme to another extreme. Never, never balance. It's always an extreme kind of thing. They even create new doctrines to try and help themselves. They twist good doctrines. This is what every cult does. This is what every false religion in the world does, right? It takes that which is pure, pure and good and right and holy and it twists it to suit themselves, and to make some form of works religion. Because all cults and all false religions are works-oriented, never grace-oriented. So if you're a Mormon, you believe you're a god. And you believe your purpose ultimately of being blessed is that you will procreate other gods on other planets. I mean, who ever heard of such rubbish? It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, that you're going to become a god. No? So, this is what they do. And they claim to be Christian, the Mormons. And you can think of the Jehovah's Witnesses and you think of all kinds of other things. And even the Roman Catholic Church with its superstition, its need to twist Scripture to found it or base their idea of Scripture upon their traditions to explain their practices. And it's just strange and varied, and they've kept coming up over the centuries with new ideas, right? That seem to be stranger and stranger and stranger. Yet they proclaim orthodox doctrines. So in all of the cults and all of the false religions, there is no comprehension of God's grace, only of works to achieve some righteousness. I think evangelicals also have become sidetracked from the pure gospel, the purity of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, floating foolish notions and false narratives and, and politicizing everything. I mean, everything today is politicized, even by the church, even by Christians. 
Conspiracy theories and ideas everywhere, right? Notice the word in verse 9. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange. Strange teachings. That word strange means alien, foreign teachings. Teachings that have nothing to do with the Bible. Teachings that are strange to the Bible, foreign to Scripture, yet they are posed as Scripture, as if they're from the Bible, and even argued, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the Gospels. The worst, worst argument anybody can say is that what they believe doesn't affect the Gospel. Because it does affect the Gospel. Everything affects the Gospel. Everything is related to grace. In fact, the writer says here, even simple food is connected to an issue connected to a weakening of the heart instead of being strengthened by grace. So we must not be seduced by any of the stuff that's out there. And frankly, it's not easy to, to live in this world. New sexual ideas, right? New gender ideas, which are horrific to us because God has given us the standard. New cosmologies, right? Time, space, earth, whatever it is. New racial concepts constructs. And this is the stuff we face every day of our lives, right? You start tampering, playing with any of that stuff, okay? You are being led away, the writer to the Hebrew says. And in fact, all that simply happens is your discernment is affected. Your discernment is affected by it. And these are teachings which, because he describes them as strange and diverse, creep in. So they can't come full-blown. They have to creep in. They have to be subtle. I mean, that's all false teaching, right? All false teaching is subtle. In fact, the wolf is not dressed as a wolf. He's dressed as a sheep, right? Masquerading. Just putting out a little wolf stuff every now and again to suck you in, right? And these teachings which creep in, notice... I think you should notice, I don't think the entire church embraces them. But this is like Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, the seven churches of the book of Revelation, right? What is the one central feature to five churches out of the seven? Do not compromise with the system, with the world. For two of those churches, they had not compromised. And there is no rebuke given to them. But you can see quite easily how in the church today that what is said of the, Roman, the, the churches in the book of Revelation can be true of us. That we have compromised in many, many areas. But at large, I think there are many Christians who are troubled by these things and res are restrained from them or refrain from them. But it's their introduction that is the concerning part. You introduce them little by little by little. It's like the frog in the boiling water eventually perishes. Philip Edgecombe Hughes has quite a, quite a marvelous statement, which took me a while to figure out. He says, History bears ample testimony to the astonishing fecundity of the heretical mentality. Now, after a while, you say, what are you talking about? What does fecundity mean? Fecundity simply means fertile power. So, history bears ample testimony to the astonishing fertility of the heretical mentality. History is full of heresy, isn't it? History is full of false teaching. Even Paul has to deal with false teaching over and over again in the New Testament. 
So that that which is not orthodox, that which is not evangelical, that which is not edifying must be discarded as once. If it doesn't build up, no good. Throw it out. If it's not to our benefit, it's not building me in grace, don't want it. Not interested. That's exactly what the writer is saying here. Even food, which in and of itself is a good gift from God, a physical thing that is associated here with spiritual matters and thus attains some supposed entity or ability to please God. The food. But foods do not commend us to God. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8. That's what Paul said. So what has happened? Right? I mean, think about some basic approaches to food, right? There's normal consumption, okay? So you sit down to breakfast, you sit down to lunch. It's a normal consumption. But there's also gluttonous consumption and overindulgence. And there is also abstinence, in one sense, or ascetic-type views of food. Can't touch that, can't touch that. No, that's bad for you, that's bad for you. And the, oh, no, that's not good for you. All of those ideas, by the way, are not just physical, but spiritual. Spiritual. And I know they're spiritual because we commend them to other people. We talk about them as if this will benefit your life. So now, growing up in Africa, you become very familiar with sugar cane. The sugar cane grows on the side of the road. So anybody can go by and just chop down a stalk of sugar cane, and you peel back it, and then you just eat this delicious sugar. It's natural, it's beautiful. It's made by God. I'm so glad God made thousands and millions of them. Right? You can enjoy them. We take sugar, and we are distressed by sugar today, because we're told, oh no, sugar's bad for you. But where does sugar come from? Sugar comes from God. How can we say any food is bad for you? Because Jesus said all foods are clean. Now I have to confess, as you know, I struggle with some of the fishy stuff. Okay? So the crabby, lobsterish stuff... So it's real hard for me, right? I don't go with claws. I don't do that. I prefer a slab of beef, right? There's something about it. You eat it, and inst instantaneously your brain kicks in. You feel great. Three hours later, you don't feel so great. So there are goods and bads with foods, right? We all recognize that. We all recognize the physical side of them, but I want to tell you, the moment you take those and put them into a spiritual context, you lead away from grace. And that's what you have to be careful of. And it's so easy for us to do, right? So the Jewish Essenes, this, this religious strict sect made up of Jews, they have their ascetic practices. They refrain from these foods because they're bad. don't want to do that. What about the Colossian Gnostics? They prohibited certain foods. So Paul writes about them. They said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Colossians 2. And remember what Paul told Timothy. He said, there are those who forbid marriage. And there are those who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I ask these, or I say these things, because what is the writer talking about when he talks about food in the passage? I don't think he's talking about abstain from foods. Okay? I don't think he's saying, you know, look, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings that are related to foods. 
for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. I don't think he's saying stay away from food. That's not, what he, that's not the context. Okay. He compares the strengthening of your heart to food and grace. That's what he's doing. He compares the strengthening of your heart to food, a physical thing, and grace, which is a spiritual thing. So he means that a person experiences the spiritual strength that they get by grace and not by food. That's what he's talking about. That if you want spiritual strength, it's going to be by grace and not by foods in a religious system. Okay. So for instance, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not a matter of physical food and drink, but it's a matter of spiritual things, righteousness, joy, and peace. So Paul, is not, Paul in Romans 14, by the way, is not condemning the eating and the drinking of physical food, is he? No, he's not saying that. He's just saying that the kingdom is not made up of those things. And if you start to pay attention to those kinds of things in a religious, spiritual manner, he says that's the problem. That's not of the kingdom. The kingdom is all about righteousness and peace and so on. And nor is the writer, as some commentators have tended to think, talking in some allusion to the Lord's table, eating the bread. I don't think that's what he means at all here. Nor is he talking about food offered to idols, which was rampant in the ancient world. No, I think the answer lies in the text. So for instance, if you look at verse 10, we have an altar, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, have no right to eat. You see that? We have an altar at which we eat, but they have no right to eat at it. In verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So that the Jewish practices of food and sacrifice are in direct proportion to our sacrifice in Christ and what we participate in, the altar at which we eat at, which Lord willing next time consider verse 10 and onwards. So this is about going back to Passover. This is about going back to Leviticus and the food offerings. And you know, I've always enjoyed reading about the meal offerings and the grain offerings and the food offerings. I've always enjoyed reading about those. You know, in the griddle and on the pan and all of the, the way they're presented. All of those, those ways that, that grain was, you know, boiled, cooked up, whatever it was, and presented to God as part of sacrifice. I've always enjoyed reading those. But what a way to live, right? Bring your food offering. After a while, you may get some strange ideas about food. Okay? So the great problem in Hebrews is, as you know, going backwards, not going forwards. So you notice uh, in verse 11, sorry, verse 13, I'm sorry, therefore let us go to him, that's Jesus, outside the camp. So where am I going? Right? I'm not going backwards. Right, the, the Hebrews are thinking about going backwards. They're contemplating a return to Judaism. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the whole system. They're thinking about it. That's why Hebrews is written, don't go there. Don't go back. Don't go backwards. To go backwards is works. It's all the Levitical system. To go forward is grace. 
let us go outside the camp, bear the reproach that Jesus has borne for us. So, the great problem is to go back to Judaism instead of continuing in the gospel and the grace of the gospel. And the removal of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which comes about when Jesus died on the cross, and in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple and all of the priesthood and all of the sacrifices, all of the victims, all the requirements, all the observances, that removal, of course, is gone. And you don't have to, Hebrews, go back there. Because you have to reconstruct it, another religion, to satisfy you. Sometimes we have difficulty accepting grace, don't we? We want to do something. We want to please God. We want to help God out. But you see, grace is not something you can do. Grace is something you receive. And it's freely given to us. And that's what we have to learn to receive more and more the grace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think about all the variety of strange and diverse teachings, grace subsides. And you begin to think of how you can please God. How you can be pleasing to God. Instead, God comes to you and says, you can do nothing without my grace. Nothing. You can't be anybody without grace. It's grace that changes your life. It's grace that affects your mind and your heart and your attitude. Works confuse us. Works are never enough. How do you know when you've done enough to please God? You can never know. But grace is what Jesus has done for all of us freely and fully and completely. So, the one central thing to their religion, the Hebrews, is actually no more, the writer says, of no value. It's done. It's over. And these Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews in the context, is saying, you are mistaken, he says, if you now think that you will receive any spiritual benefit from eating the things you ate before in your Levitical system. In fact, in verse 9, the writer says, look what he says, they were previously devoted to them. He says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So they were devoted to them. They kept on, they kept on doing these things. They persisted in doing them. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says, you got no benefit from them. That's what works is. It's a persistence in doing them to no avail, to no benefit. In fact, it's deception because you are deceived into thinking you are pleasing God. Yes, Paul's right. Food does not commend us, will not commend us to God at all. Now back in chapter 9 of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says that gifts and sacrifices, these gifts and sacrifices that were once offered, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various other regulations. So that old system was, was just about a physical thing, really, when you think about it. It didn't change their hearts, did it? The Levitical system couldn't change their hearts. Legality doesn't do that. Grace does that. They needed grace, always. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why do any of them? Because their value ultimately was only in relation to their body. Food, drink, and whatever. They ate of the sacrifices, and so on. 
So apart from the fact that God commanded that system, right, why did he do that? Because that system points forward to the better man, to the better temple, to the better sacrifice, to the better priest, the better country, to Jesus, right? They point forward to the perfect fulfillment and accomplishment of Christ. So in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have everything I need for my spiritual life. Let me not be led away by anything that requires something plus Jesus. Let me not add anything, believe anything except Jesus. Right? How do I do that? The writer tells me, look to your heart. Look to your heart. So spiritual benefit, spiritual growth is a heart issue. How is your heart? Right? Back in Hebrews 3 verse 8, the writer to the Hebrews quoting from the Old Testament about what God said to Israel, do not harden your hearts. Have a soft heart, right? Don't harden your hearts. God is provoked by hard hearts because hard hearts are evil, unbelieving hearts, Hebrews 3.12. Hearts that go astray. Hard hearts. We need strong hearts by grace, not weak hearts. That word strengthened, you see the word strengthened there means to be confirmed. It means to be established. I need to be established in grace. My heart needs to be established by grace. That's what the new covenant promises, by the way. God gives me a new heart. Clean heart. Pure heart. New mind. Right mind. He writes His laws, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, on our hearts so that we can love Him and obey Him. That's why we approach God as Christians, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean, right? Because our consciences have been affected by the blood of Jesus. Psalm 37, 31, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What is this heart? What is it? It's not my physical beating heart. No, it's the place of attitudes and the place of conduct. It's the seat of all human personality. It's a spiritual thing. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23.7 So a strong heart in grace is not so easily distressed or distracted by strange things. So what occupies your heart? What is it that occupies your heart? How can I strengthen my heart by grace? Because he tells me to strength, be, have my heart strengthened, be strong. Well, let me give you some things straight out of Hebrews. Number one, don't neglect your salvation. Hebrews 2.3. Number two, hold your original confidence firm to the end. Chapter 3.14. Make sure your hope is a firm anchor for your soul. Chapter 6.19. Hold fast to your confession without wavering, chapter 10, 23. Approach God boldly through the blood of Jesus to obtain help and find grace to help you in time of need, 4, 16 and 10, 19. Why should you go to God? Because God's throne is a throne of grace. Grace just comes from God to us. That's where I find help day by day, from God, because He's a God of grace. So all strange ideas, diverse ideas, various ideas, 
could say many things about those things. They all have an appearance of wisdom. They all promote self-made religions and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Nothing. No power. No spiritual power. Zero. Because they're not of grace. Anything not of grace, no strength in the heart. Nothing. See, it's only grace that does that for you and for me this, tonight. So I say to you, as the writer says, strengthen your heart and you won't be led away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, this little injunction to strengthen our hearts by grace. We recognize, Father, that for us there are differences between us and the Hebrews. The Hebrews had many other connections that they made, but we can make those to ourselves because strange and diverse teachings abound everywhere in every age. Help us to be taken up with grace. Not that we use grace as a license or abuse grace, for that would be wrong, but that we would receive your grace showered upon us. We don't deserve grace. We deserve wrath. But thank you, Father, that you are filled with grace toward your people. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you that you have been so kind that you gave your Son, who died for us, to secure our salvation, our redemption. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who applies that secured redemption at the cross. Thank you, Father, for these glorious truths that we believe. Now we ask that you would strengthen our hearts by grace, that we would not be led astray and led away by other teachings or doctrines or ideas, but that we would humble ourselves and that we would come to Jesus for grace and come to your throne for mercy and help in time of need. So thank you for this day and thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the Lord's day. Thank you for each one gathered here. Pray that you would take us home safely and watch over us. And as we enter this new week, that you'd go before us. And if it pleases you, gracious God, you would lead us deeper into your ways. That we might know that for sure this week. Help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk in the Spirit day by day. So send us out as your people into this world to be your people, to be light and to be salt. We commit ourselves to you now and thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.